0: Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ezra this morning. Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. I missed it. Got to Job. I need to go back. Ezra chapter 5. We're going to be in the same verse that we were last week. We're not going to stay here. So, Ezra chapter 5, um, I've entitled this message, <clears throat> excuse me, The One Who Tells It Like He Sees It. Last week it was Haggai, and the title was The One Who Tells It Like It Is, because Haggai was so succinct, right? Two chapters, just a couple of months worth of a ministry where he just told it like it was. He just wanted to correct their thinking. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to be humble and he wanted them to have hope. And it was just a short, succinct book. We see in, the, in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem or Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Today, we're going to look at this next prophet. It's the prophet Zechariah. Now, if if Haggai is the prophet who tells it like it is, and he is, he just says it, right? We read that last week. Zechariah is one in 14 chapters. These 14 chapters are incredible. I mean, they are so incredible. There are so many things that we're going to look at. As a matter of fact, let's turn in our Bibles to Zechariah. So we want to go to the middle of the Bible and keep going to the right. If you get to Matthew or the New Testament, go back to the left. Just two books, Matthew and then back to Malachi. And then the one right next to Malachi, right before Malachi, is the prophet um, Zechariah. And he is speaking into the same exact time period that we saw in the first part of the book of Haggai. And then we've seen already in the book of Ezra. At this moment when Zechariah comes on the scene... The building of the temple has stopped. As a matter of fact, the opening of chapter 5, it's 15 years later or 16 years later from when we saw the children of Israel weeping in sorrow, but also celebrating in joy. So much so that the sound could be heard from far away. In chapter 4, we also saw how the adversaries had, had petitioned the rulers to try to get um, Ezra's or uh, the children of Israel to stop and to throw a wrench into the affairs. And, and so over the whole course of chapter four or four, we saw that there's a time period that passes. And that's how Ezra sort of brings us into almost the present time. And as we read, we, we come to the point where they've stopped building the house of the Lord. We saw last week that the reason they did it was because they cared more about their own houses Remember, we saw how they cared more about what they were doing and how they were progressing and what was happening to them. And God sent Haggai and said, hey, what's going on? You're building your houses, but you've stopped building mine. And And so here we are today with, uh, with Zacharias stepping in. And uh, I remember last week when we were talking, what do we do with a group of people who have stopped obeying? What do we do with a group of people that have stopped following and stopped walking with the Lord? Well, what God does with them is he sends his word. He sends his word into their life. Today, he's going to do that also. But Zechariah is a different prophet. When we read the book of Zechariah, we're going to see something that's really significant. Zechariah, when we get to chapter 8 of Ezra, we're going to see that He's the grandson of one of the priests who is in Babylon. He's a grandson of a priest. He's a Levite. He's, he's of the priestly line. And so he's been raised up to understand the Old Testament in a priestly fashion. And we can see some of that when we read his book. This is who he is, is. This is what he's done. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that he was one of the chosen Levites that Ezra chooses to bring to, um, to Jerusalem to help guide and lead the people. And when we read the book of, uh, of Zechariah, it's so pretty. There's so much that we can see. We're going to see, look, if you have your Bibles open to Zechariah, you can look, in, and I don't know about your Bibles, but if you look at the headlines above, like the headline above verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, we're going to see a vision of horsemen. So there's always something that we can see in the book of Ezra. It's a vision of horns and craftsmen above verse 8 or verse 18. In chapter 2, my title says a vision of a man with a measuring line. The beginning of chapter 3, it's a vision of Joshua the high priest. In chapter 4, it's a vision of the golden lampstand. In chapter 5, it's a vision of a flying scroll. In the middle of chapter 5, it's a vision of a woman in a basket. In chapter 6, it's a vision of four chariots. In uh, chapter 6, it's all, we're also going to see the crown. We're also going to see the temple. In chapter 7, we're going to see what God does as he works through the different aspects of revealing their heart. We're going to see these things. And so I've entitled this message, The One Who Call, or Tells It Like He Sees It. Because everything about the book of Zechariah is about us looking and seeing. And that's really a precious thing. I was thinking about that as I sat there and was singing today about how much of our worship is is based on visual. I was thinking about how much we do here that is based on what we can see. I don't know about you, maybe you've been here so long that you missed the the significance of, of these banners. And as I was singing about the Lord Jesus and who he was, I was looking at this and seeing that he is our savior and the cross is emphasized. We have this big cross right here that... That is a vision of something that we see and we see it and it leads our heart somewhere. The pulpit here, this represents God's proclaimed word. When we see the pulpit, when we see God's word presented on the table, we see what God is doing in our lives. It's really significant. And that's the kind of prophet, that's the kind of message that God brings into the people of Israel in the book of Ezra. He brings somebody who says, hey, look at it this way. And that's a big deal. This morning, as we look at this, we need to see three things. I'm not going through all 14 chapters and pointing out everything. I'm just not going to take the time today. But there's three things I, I would like us to look at. The first one is the importance of seeing things the way God sees them. The importance of seeing things the way God sees them. Getting our hearts right to the point where we are beginning to look at life the way God looks at life. Just like we saw last week, the book of Zechariah is meant to communicate God's message to the people. Last week I talked about how often in 38 verses it was pointed out that the Lord spoke. Right? It was like 26 times in, 20, in 38 ver- verses God said something or he declared something or his word was emphasized. Today I'm only going to go through the first six verses, but open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first six verses. And I'd like for you to have your your radar up. How many times do you see the emphasis on God's word? In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me says the Lord of hosts and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts Do not be like your fathers whom the former prophets to whom the former prophets cried out thus says the Lord of hosts return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the Lord Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, did they not overtake your fathers? And so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Nine times in those six verses, nine times, as a matter of fact, in in those six verses, God's word is pointed out. And we're going to see that as you read through this. Time and time again, God speaks to an angel who speaks to the prophet. God says to the prophet, and he speaks to the people. As we read this, it's imperative that we see the importance of seeing things the way God sees them. The children of Israel are in a bad place. They've stopped doing what God said, and they're living their own lives their own way. They see things through their own glasses, their own filter, and God steps in and says, no, You must look at life my way. You must listen to me. It's a big deal. In just this passage here, God gives them several perspectives. I mean, he opens up with the historic perspective. Look at life from the big picture, he says. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, the Lord of hosts, said the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. He gives them this perspective that's historic. The reason they're in Jerusalem today and the temple isn't built is because their fathers disobeyed the Lord. And they need to have that perspective. They need to be looking at this the way God is. It's a historic perspective. You're here for a reason. In verse 6 and following, he gives a theological perspective. Meaning, a way of looking at it God's way. He says, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. That's theological. This is God at work. And he wants his children not just to look at the history, but the purpose behind the history. It's so important that we see history God's way, and it's so important that we see our intentions, our motivations, God's way. It's a big deal. And he gives them this spiritual perspective where he talks about repentance. He talks about following him. We need to look at the the word this way. We need to to see this. There's going to be three things that, uh, or two things that we look at next. In this perspective, I've just chosen two. uh, I could have chosen any number of them in the 14 chapters. But we're going to see in Zechariah's message, we're going to see that God sees us as we really are. God sees us as we really are. And the second thing we're going to see, or the third thing that we're going to see, is that God shows them the only way. It's important that we look at that. They're in Jerusalem. They've dropped the ball. They're no longer following the Lord's commands. They're doing their own thing. And God says, hey, I need you to look at this. There's going to be two ways. Turn with me to chapter 3. Turn with me to chapter three. This is such an exciting chapter, and I hope as you read it, you can see why why it excites me. But God sees us as we really are. He sees us as sinners. That's what he looks at. It says that then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. See the vision there? He showed him he could see. This is what God revealed to Zechariah. He revealed to Zechariah this perspective, sort of opens up the curtains and lets Zechariah see what's really happening here. They think that they're being persecuted by the adversaries. They think they're being persecuted by their human enemies. They think that God is, is ignoring them because they're no longer reaping Good harvest, and they're no longer getting good benefit and produce from their fields. They think God has forgotten them. But Zechariah opens up this curtain and lets them see what the truth is. And he shows them the truth. Satan is standing there accusing them. Look what he says. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So this is what the angel, or this is what Zechariah sees. He sees Joshua. Remember, Jeshua, the, the son of uh, uh, Jehozadak, I think, or something like that. He, he sees Jeshua, who is the priest, right, in the book of uh, Ezra. This is the high guy. This is the one who is, is sort of like the example. He and Zerubbabel are the leaders of the people, But when he pulls the curtain back and shows the children of Israel how God sees Jeshua, it shows that he sees the pinnacle of their spirituality as filthy rags. That's a really interesting dynamic. God sees us that way. When God looks at the most spiritual person in In Jerusalem at the time. He sees him as he sees him in verse 4. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Wow. He goes on to say, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by This morning, this is a crucial aspect of the message of Zechariah to the people. They need to see that God sees them, not the way they present themselves before him, with nice houses and nice clothes and good jobs and hard work. But when God looks at them, he sees them for their sin. God isn't acting to deliver the Israelites because he thinks they're good people and just need a little assistance. That's not what's happening. He sees them as they really are, so sinful that even their high priest is filthy. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for everybody. This is the work that God is at. This is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing for the people of God to be shown. There's no encouragement here. There's no emotional support. He doesn't send Zechariah to say, y'all are bad, but it's okay. You'll get better. He doesn't call Zechariah to come and say, hey, you know, guys, I know you're trying, but just try a little harder. That's not what God shows Zechariah. What God shows the people is "No, you know how good you think you are? No, you're not. You're not. What a message. What a message. It's a, a, it's a necessary message. Get over yourselves, he says. Now look at the second half of this chapter because this is fantastic. This, this is the kind of stuff that makes me excited. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter says this, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter looks back to the prophets and he says, hey, listen, God was at work in them and, and church today. We get to see that. In verse 6, he says this. This is so exciting. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. And then he says this, are you, are you reading with me in verse 8? Um, he says, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. He's not saying I'll bring my servant a branch. He's saying the branch is the servant that he's bringing. Now, if you're familiar with the other prophets, you'll understand, especially Isaiah, that when the prophets speak of this branch, they're speaking of this branch that grows out of this root root. That was the people of God, but was condemned and cut down because of their sin. But throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, there's always this one branch that is going to come. This one secure and healthy part of this this body that will grow up and deliver his people. And here we can see, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And then look what it says in verse 9. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Church, God shows the people their sin. He shows them the reality of their fallenness. As a motivation to get back to work to build the temple that God will then use as a picture of his salvation 400 years later. Uh, This is amazing. This is the gospel. You and I know the truth enough. We've read the Bible enough to know that when he talks about removing the iniquity of this land in a single day, we know what he's talking about. That's this gospel. That's this picture. Isn't it it amazing that here, 450 years earlier, God is telling his people, he's helping them to see into the future. In the future, the work you do today will communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that are alive at that time. God, God is showing them. God is seeing the truth. Oh, this, is, this excites me. This is the stuff that, that when the Bible says, search for it like treasures, it causes me to be like, oh my God, what else is in here? And I want to challenge you this week, there's only 14 chapters, read this book and time and time again, you're going to see things that remind you of the gospel because they are the gospel. As we read this, we really can see ourselves as we really are. Lost and hopeless, helpless Chapter 7 and chapter 8, hard-hearted. He, he describes it like this, diamond-hard-hearted. Our hearts are so hard. What a great thing for us. What a great thing. In verse 6 of chapter 3, God is showing Zechariah that when the people see Yeshua or Joshua, they are seeing something of what he will be doing for his people in Jerusalem in the future. When they look at Yeshua or Joshua being clothed in pure clothes, they're going to be looking for in the future a high priest who will be clothed. In verse 7, it describes only one man in all of history. Only one man in all of history. The one who walks in his ways and keeps his charge, who rules over his house and has charge over his courts. There's only one man in all of history that this passage is talking about. And God is opening up the curtains of history and letting you see it. What an encouragement to the people in Ezra's time. Verse 8, there's only one man in all of the prophets who is called the branch Verse 9, there's only one man in all of history who is the cornerstone. There's only one man who levels all humanity. Look at verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And isn't that a message we need today? One man who levels all humanity. No class, no race, no social distinction, just one man. Jesus Christ. Very exciting. When God sends the prophets to confront his people, even way back in Ezra's time, he sends them pictures of the gospel and he shows them who they really are. Let's get to work, people. This is who you really are. You need God at work in your souls You need your filthy rags taken off. You must be saved. Oh, what an encouragement. So much more to go, but I want to skip over to chapter 12. If you'll skip with me to chapter 12. The third thing that that I saw this week that stood out to me that I want to bring to your attention is that God shows them the only way. The only way. As I read this, I even read this again this morning. I was so encouraged. I thought, how can I just preach this message on this one passage and how can I do it in 35 or 40 minutes and get all of it in? I couldn't do it. But look at what it says in chapter 12 and chapter 13, the oracle of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. That's a vision. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people's The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone to all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. What a vision! But if they don't build it, if Ezra is rubbable and Jeshua don't build it, this won't come true. Let's get to work, please. Let's get to work. But why? In verse 8, Or verse four, on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. There's that theme again of of seeing. He's going to keep his eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. And then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. There's a picture. There's a vision. Like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. While Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place. In Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And what a great vision. God will be victorious. You need to get back to work You need to put your hammer at your house away and bring your work to my house and build my house, says the Lord. You need to build my place of worship. You need to exalt me because I will be victorious. But how will he be victorious? What is the means by which he fixes the sin? How is it possible for God to take the impure and make them pure what will he do to wash them whiter than snow god shows them the only way christians when we read this next part be ready to be excited i feel the bumps right the goosebumps right now he says in verse 10 and i will pour out on the house of david and the inhabitants of jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy so that, read it with me, look in your Bibles. So that when they look on me, on who, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Remen in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Look in your Bibles. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is such a precious thing. God sent Zechariah to the children of Israel and Ezra. To preach to them the gospel. Verse 4 has the Lord keeping his eyes open while others are blinded. God is the one who sees. In verse 10, it has the Lord revealing the precious truth of his plan of salvation to his people. It says when they look. When they visually make contact. What are they looking on? They're looking on God's answer. They're looking on God's sacrifice. They're looking on the one that they have pierced. And there's so much here to see. God is the one who is pierced, and his people are the ones who pierced him. Look at the words only son. Look at the word firstborn. Look at verse, five, or verse 1 of chapter 13. This piercing releases a cleansing flood. All of this, you and I are familiar with this. We might not have known it was in Zechariah, but all of us are familiar with this language. This is God's message to his people, even in the Old Testament. All of this is revealing something. We see even in in chapter 14, the powerful uh, reality of the resurrection, where the king himself lives. He died earlier, but now he is alive. The shepherd was struck, but now he is alive. Isn't it interesting that when God wants to motivate the Hebrews to finish their work, he uses this kind of language to get them motivated. Now, can you see why they needed to finish the temple? So much of history is going to be coming into this place. God has peeled back the shroud that keeps them from seeing what he is doing. And he's now allowing them to see the significance of this work. As we read the Gospels from now on, you and I need to read the Gospel with this prophet's message in mind. The Gospel isn't just a one-time-only situation. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Paul said this when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There is this overarching sovereign plan of God, and he uses that to motivate his people to step up and do their work. As he speaks with the people in Ezra, he wants them to see that the glory of what God is doing is connected to their lives. Their lives. He is the one that has done this. Now, you and I, I want you to think with me. They were looking forward to this. They were looking to see what God was going to do. But you and I, we get to look back and see what he's already done. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it is in a very real way, in a very real way, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom that they were laying the foundation for, the kingdom that they were working to bring about, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand now. And you and I are a part of it. What a great motivation. Especially this past week. Our national pride... It's important for us as Americans who live in America. It's important, but it's not crucial. These elections are significant, but they're not eternal. This nation is special, but it is not our salvation. The message that God has for the children of Israel it's important for you and I today. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. You and I also have Zechariah to look at and see we are sinners. God sees us that way. There's nothing we can do to fix that. But the message of Zechariah is also that you don't have to worry, God. Has done it for us. That's a motivation. You and I have the four gospels, the four gospels that live out Zachariah's message. We can look at it and see all of the different ways that Jesus Christ has come and accomplished God's plan. He is at work at all times. He is telling us to get our eyes off of ourselves and to get busy with what he has to do. Jesus said it this way. If you want to be my disciples, you will deny yourself. You will take up your cross and you will follow me. That's the message for us today. That's the truth of the reality Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is as central to their story as it is to ours. Paul in the New Testament does the same kind of thing for us. In Colossians chapter 3, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What a picture for you and I. Pulling back. The curtains of heaven, and letting you and I look into heaven and see our Savior, the one whom they pierced, to see our high priest, the one who has been clothed with all glory, with all majesty. You and I must look at the world this way. Christians, you and I must look at the world this way. He is the source and the center of all of human history. And this is the message 450 years before the Gospels that God showed his people. You get to work. You do what I command. You follow me because of Christ. How precious is that? This fountain is the one that cleanses every sinner who repents and believes That's the fountain that we're going to sing about here in a second. As we close, there's a couple of things I'd like for you to think about. A couple of things that I'd like you maybe to write down and, and sort of take away. God has opened up heaven and allows us to see that we're sinners. And we've fallen short and we can't save ourselves. And he's also opened up heaven to see that the way that we can be saved is by Christ coming and taking our punishment on himself, shedding his blood that will cleanse us from all our sins. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? That was what motivated the children of Israel to obey. How does that truth motivate us to obey? Let's think about it. Moms and dads. Moms and dads, grandmothers, grandfathers. Your families need to learn to see these things the way God does. His message to the children of Israel is your message to the children. Whether they're young or old. We need to encourage our families to see God. Or see ourselves the way God does. To look at the gospel. Moms, they need you to be their ears and their eyes. They need you to show them. Listen, I know this is hard and I know it doesn't feel good, but our children need us to show them that they are sinners. That's a sobering thought. But if we don't, who will? Our world won't. Our world won't. I've been listening to so many political speeches over the last couple of weeks saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Saying things are true and we know they're not true. Dads, you and I need to stand up and make sure that we're helping our children to see the world the way God sees it that we're sinners, that we've fallen short. Not just once, but constantly. We must show them their sins so that they can know the savior. We need to show them that we're sinners and we understand it. We need to show them that we can see ourselves the way God sees us. That's a big deal. Dads, especially. Moms, that's a big deal. Husbands, wives, we need to get about the work of doing what God has commanded. We need to show each other that we can see our own sin. Oh, we spend so much time hiding it. We spend so much time thinking that we're the high priest of our house and we've got everything done right and we've connected all the dots, but... God even took the high priest and showed that, you know, by himself, he was covered in filthy rags. We need to show our families that we can see ourselves the way God does. So many times in this picture, in this book, he reveals this kind of stuff. We need to see it this way. We need to be active in this. We need to be active. We need to stop hiding it. We need to repent. We need to get over ourselves. That's what we need to do. All of us, the gospel message is gospel's message is God's message for us today. This book is appropriate for you and I who quite possibly have stopped working on God's house. Quite possibly haven't even give, given God's worship a second thought other than, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late to get to church today. All of us need to hear the message that Zechariah has. Coming to God's house isn't about us, it's about God and what he has done. We need to get busy with the gospel. The gospel message is God's message for us as we live. Think about this, forgiveness is the gospel message and that's the message we need to be proclaiming every single day. Think about it, what he tells the, the Ephesians. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is the gospel message. Repentance. How many times do we need to get over ourselves? How many times do we say, right now, in this room, how many of us right now are saying, I sure hope so-and-so is listening. We do that all the time. But that message isn't for so-and-so, it's for you and me. That's the gospel message. We're not going to get on to God's work unless we get over ourselves. Stop building our house, stop building our kingdom, stop building our reputation and focus on His. Hope, oh my goodness, that's a message we need today. That's a message that you and I need to be pointing to when everybody is giving their lives right now to talk about how hopeful or hopeless it is regardless of your political perspective. The reality and the truth is that there is only one source of hope and you and I have it. God's shown us the glory of it. Let's get on with it. Joy. Think of the joy Think of the pleasure and the the satisfaction and the contentment of God at work in and through us. The glory of the satisfaction of the gospel. We have this message. What a motivation. Peace, salvation, deliverance, love. We are so blessed. We are so blessed to be living on this side of the cross. To be living in the power of the resurrection. But we need to do this. We need to live for his glory. Let's pray. Good Lord Jesus work in our souls today. That we would see ourselves the way you do. And that we would see the way that you have made for our deliverance and salvation, the sacrifice of Father, help us to look to you only. Help us to get over ourselves. Help us to trust in the truth of the gospel. For Christ's sake we pray today. Amen.